Are you wondering how you can learn more about food? Well, you're in the right place. This is the Chakula Podcast, brought to you by the Root to Food Initiative, a show that celebrates authentic Kenyan dishes and serves you hot conversations about food in Kenya from an economic, social, and political lens. Semanasi kwenye social media, at Root to Food on Instagram, at Root to Food on Twitter, and Root to Food on Facebook. And now, here's your host, Felistas Mwalia. Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of the Chakula podcast. On the last episode, we discussed about a very pertinent issue, the history of food and how food was a fundamental tool in the process of colonization. And one interesting fact that came out from the conversation is the fact that to date, food is still a tool for colonization. I'll link it below just in case you missed it. Today, we are continuing with the same line of thoughts, but with a focus on the state of the small-scale farmer. I'll be speaking to Christine Mungai. She is a writer, journalist, and a curator of Baraza Media Lab, a co-working and collaborative hub that provides space and carefully curated events and projects, all aiming to strengthen the Kenyan media ecosystem. Karibu, Christine. Thank you. Thank you for making time to join us on this episode. I'm so glad to have you on site today. Thank you for the invitation. To start us off, what does the world of a small-scale farmer look like for you? A small-scale farmer in my mind uh-huh. uh, in Kenya is typically a woman. Wow. Uh, rural. Someone who has some land that she tends to but really doesn't have a title or legal rights over it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Is someone who is very hardworking, tireless, determined, resilient, working under very difficult conditions with mm-hmm. a lot of circumstances that are against her but doing the best with what she can. A small-scale farmer to me is also someone who is very dynamic and innovative, picking up and dropping projects depending on how they are doing. Maybe this time doing chicken, another time trying her hand with fish farming, another time with vegetables, another time with maize. So Mm -hmm. always trying to figure out a way to make the circumstances work for her. But the system a lot of the time doesn't really support her to get to the full potential, not only of her land, but also of herself. I really like the fact that you decided to say that in your world, a small-scale farmer is a woman. That's that's the truth about the Kenyan Mm -hmm. situation. Okay. A big challenge facing small-scale farmers today, as you have rightly put, is that the systems are not actually working for them. And you have seen many private organizations trying to come in and trying to help them out. What is your take on this and the fact that many organizations are taking part in fixing this problem? I would say they are attempting to fix the problem. Mm -hmm. As you know, Kenya is a capitalistic society. So anywhere where there is an opportunity to make a profit, someone is going to try to come in and fill Mm -hmm. in that gap. Another big thing about the Kenyan situation is the attraction that it has for foreign companies and especially tech companies coming in trying to put in tech solutions, Kenya really attracts that kind of company uh that is well capitalized, that has a technological angle, and that is also kind of embedded in the structural problems that we have in this country. Mm -hmm. One of those that I discovered and that I've known about for a while is One Acre Fund, which I first came to know about, I think, eight years ago, 2012, Mm -hmm. when I read a book that was written by 
an American journalist. It's called The Last Hunger Season. And Where can we find the book? I'm not sure because that book was delivered to my desk ah. when I was a reporter at the East African. Uh-huh. And the author's name is Roger Thorough. I I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Mm-hmm. Um but this journalist spent a year in Western in Bungoma. Mm-hmm. You know, living with farmers and seeing how their lives, the ups and downs of their lives of being a small-scale farmer. Mm-hmm. One time the rains are late, the other time you're not getting that yeah. much mm-hmm. at harvest time. Mm-hmm. A child needs school fees, a cow has to be sold. So just the normal kind of dynamics that uh we might be familiar with what i appreciated about that book is the depth that it went to mm-hmm. and really trying to un- to unpack and to understand how the system is actually stacked up in a way that doesn't support farmers i'll give you an example yeah. mm-hmm. most of the time when farmers harvest they all harvest at the same time mm-hmm. and they sell at the same time yeah. which means the market is flooded with the produce mm-hmm. right and mm-hmm. so prices are low and they sell it towards the end of the year november december mm-hmm. and in january most of them have school fees demands oh yeah which means that they're really struggling to meet the school fees demands mm-hmm. and they sell at whatever price is there because they really need the money yeah but come march april may it hasn't rained for some time or you know the harvest stocks are depleted And so what ends up happening is that farmers end up buying maize at that time mm-hmm. to feed their families at a much higher price than they sold it in November December. So what that means wow. is that farmers become net buyers of maize. Yeah. And that these same farmers are actually food insecure for part of the of the year. Farmers are struggling with hunger with putting food on the table, which to me was the way that, you know, all these factors come into play mm-hmm. to make farmers of maize net buyers of maize throughout the year is something that I mean has stayed with me all these years. Yeah. And to me that was it was very eye-opening to see how you know certain political and economic decisions make this kind of thing a reality which i think is really unconscionable one of the things that other countries have tried um i'm not sure how well it's working in kenya yeah. is mm-hmm. a warehousing receipt system a warehousing Wa- warehousing receipt system uh-huh. which basically means in november december when you're harvesting you get to store your maize in a good facility yeah mm-hmm. and you get credit against that which means that later in the year you don't need to yourself to buy the maize but mm. instead your maize is sold at a higher price and okay. so you're able to get Some good money. prices later yeah. in the year um instead of selling your entire harvest yeah. at a low price only to Struggle. to buy it later yeah. i mean to buy maize later at a higher price so you can see this uh food situation is not just about farming it's not just about productivity it's also about the economics and the price system and how farmers interact with this kind of bigger forces yeah. or mm-hmm. macroeconomic forces so one acre fund is one of these companies that comes in to help farmers to boost their productivity by giving them certified seed fertilizer pesticide and importantly extension services which means knowledge and information yeah. mm-hmm. this is something that when i traveled to western to report on this story yeah. i found that people were very very disappointed and disillusioned by the local you know agricultural extension and agrovet yeah. shops a lot of the seed that people would buy would be you know they would say fake but from I, one acre fund not from one acre fund i'm talking about from agrovets yes yeah uh-huh. and this is the gap that one acre fund has come in to fill 
that people were used to, you know, the heartbreak and the disappointment of yeah. buying seed that doesn't germinate or buying oh, yeah. seed that has very poor yields. And I found people who had given up on farming until one acre fund came in and gave them seed that actually germinated and gave them a good harvest. Wow. And, um, yeah. and what's your overall take on their strategy? Um, so I would say that one acre fund is filling a gap that that is there, that exists. It's a real gap. Mm-hmm. When people say that on this two acre piece of land, I was only harvesting a couple of bags of maize. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then they go to one acre fund, get the seed and fertilizer on credit and harvest 30 bags. I mean, that's a huge change. It's yeah. a huge difference. And the thing is that the system is so broken and the buy is so low that even giving people seed that is reliable just makes such a huge difference. And this is something that a private company didn't necessarily need to come and fill because government could have been doing that through extension services, through Mm -hmm. the Agriculture Finance Corporation. These are systems that used to work in the past but have been neglected or have been deliberately run down for political reasons. So I would say that it's an unfortunate set of circumstances, mm-hmm. but the gap is there. It's it's painful when you speak to farmers and they say that we had given up on farming. In fact, I met one farmer who mm-hmm. has an acre of land and she had completely stopped farming because it was like throwing good money after bad all the time. And wow. what she was doing to yeah. earn an income uh-huh. was selling her labor as kibarua, like as a contract laborer on other people's farms. So oh, you can imagine yeah. someone who has land, yeah, but yeah, makes but money by, farming f- or, I mean, land. tilling other people's land. I mean, it's so just, yeah, yeah, it's very sad. Are these farms providing services that are supposed to be provided by the government? Yes, absolutely. One Acre Fund is providing services that the government used to provide. Mm-hmm. And I feel like in the past few decades, mm-hmm. you know, in this country, everything is so politicized. So just an, a humble, small-scale farmer who could depend on agricultural extension services and reliable seed yeah. mm-hmm. was kind of completely abandoned by the government, yeah. right? And in this gap is where these private, well-capitalized, often foreign farms come in to fill in the gap. Um, there are people who say that there's nothing wrong with this. I mean, like, it's it's an opportunity. Yeah, it's and what's, yeah. what's the big yeah. deal of a company coming in to take advantage of that opportunity? And if farmers are not complaining, then what's the big deal? I actually saw a, a comment on Twitter yeah. of a farmer complaining about yeah. an acre fund. Yeah. And he actually re- wrote these words in Kiswahili. The person was actually complaining, saying, Don't you think these loans at the end of the day, instead of benefiting the farmers, at some point, they actually even lock them up. And instead of reducing poverty among farmers, at some point, it's actually increasing poverty among farmers. So this is what I would say. That farmer is expressing frustration Mm -hmm. at the aggressive collection tactics that One Acre Fund is known for. Mm -hmm. I, you know, as I was reporting this story, I did come across farmers who talked about that, that structurally, One Acre Fund gives these farm assets on credit as a loan. uh And so... After the season is over and people have harvested, that's the point where you should pay back the loan, right? Yeah. The loan that, the you know, the, the seed, the fertilizer, the pesticide, everything that you got on credit. So according to One Acre Fund's own data, they have loan repayment rates of upwards of 95%. The latest figure, I think I, I wrote this story a, a few months back and mm-hmm. it was, you know, above 95%. 
And I would say, if you look at the small-scale farmer who has been undercapitalized, neglected and everything, considered risky, you know, by other farms in the past, how does one acre fund manage a 95-plus percent collection rate? What that farmer was saying on Twitter has been, you know, expressed by other farmers that the collection tactics are very, very aggressive. And for me, the thing that I would want to flag more than that is that when farmers begin to be under this one acre fund umbrella, it means that they are kind of, you know, in your words, locked in in this system where every year you're getting things on credit and paying them back. And a lot of this, it's it's kind of hard to break out of that cycle and be independent because now you're in another kind of spiral. I would say that I think it worries me mm-hmm. to some extent that a completely private firm could have such influence. such extensive reach and such influence and yeah. such mm-hmm. tentacles in in this space. We are talking about hundreds of thousands of farmers in the East African region, hundreds of thousands. To me it's it's just it's just a huge red flag yeah. that one company could have such kind of influence and that and that their whole business model is based on on credit. Yeah, and yeah. my worry is that I'm just wondering for how about future generations if our fathers keep on getting credits to buy to get pesticides, fertilizers and seeds isn't this compromising our indigenous ways of farming? Yes, absolutely. Compromising our indigenous ways of farming and also really putting a big question mark on our food sovereignty. Yeah. There's something to be said about being able to feed yourself or to feed yourself as a country, you know, in an independent and sovereign way where you can make decisions about about these kind of very important mm-hmm. questions. I mean, if if you're relying on a foreign company to feed yourself, and I really have mixed views about this. Let me put it this way, Feli. I have mixed views, which means that I cannot discount the stories that the farmers gave me that their lives have been transformed. Yeah. Someone who used to be a Kibarua now is farming on their own piece of land and has built a house. And, you know, she welcomed us into her house, was very proud that she has a iron roof on her, yeah. you know, an iron roofed house now. And she just was talking about the way she feels like she's now being respected in the community, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Those kind of stories, you can't really put them, you can't really discard them because of these other questions. What I'm saying is that it's murky and it's complicated. Mm -hmm. And when I did this story, I really did not have a clear, conclusive way. All I had was, was these concerns that, yes, we are saying that, you know, I used to harvest one bag of maize and now I harvest seven. Yeah, uh uh-huh. Can you really discount that money that someone is making now? Like this is one bag times seven bags. Like that's a real change, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. But at the end of the day, in the long run, when you look at what this kinds of company means for the Kenyan agricultural sector mm-hmm. and for food security, for food sovereignty, my story, you know, remained with those questions. And in my view, I feel like these companies really do more than just help. They also exploit. They yeah. exploit those gaps. Uh-huh. They exploit the lack of investment. They exploit the vulnerabilities in this sector. Mm-hmm. And any company that comes in to, to fill in those, van, you know, to exploit those vulnerabilities yeah. for me in the long run is something that I cannot unequivocally support. I have to critically ask yeah. questions as yeah. well. Yeah. Okay. 
A bolder claim of these private funding companies is the We Are Saving Africa story. How has this savior's complex survived for so long? Oh, the white savior complex. Yeah. You know, companies like this are very good at storytelling. <laughs> very good at storytelling. <laughs> and when they come into a space like this, they come into they come into a world where certain narratives are already deeply rooted and yeah. have mm-hmm. already already exist and are very robust. You know, this kind of idea that what is needed to kind of fix Africa is a parachuted kind of tech solution. Mm-hmm. You know this idea of leapfrogging that everyone talks about yeah. that basically Africa's problems are just one technological fix away. It's very easy in the world that we live in right now for a company like that to raise money. Yeah, yeah. Sure. And these firms are very very well capitalized very good at fundraising Interesting. and they raise millions of dollars because they are very good at storytelling <laughs> it's because their stories fit into you know kind of global expectations of what africa is what africa yeah. is capable of yeah. the kind of place that africa occupies in a kind of mythological sense for global imagination right mm-hmm. these companies are very good at kind of situating themselves in that story and so this is what i mean by kind of exploiting the vulnerabilities yeah. that are already in place what would happen if companies like one acre fund couldn't tell that story you know yeah what what kind of companies would they be you know yeah yeah i have another question but i'm i'm actually taking you a bit back yeah it's on this company is thriving and yet we have organizations like agricultural finance corporation have not been able to succeed for decades how comes well the agricultural sector when we look at it in mm-hmm. a macro in a structural way is really really an arena for politics not just mm-hmm. in this country but yeah. intensely in this country <laughs> i think i would say mm-hmm. an arena for politics the reason why agricultural finance corporation or you know agricultural extensive offices that whole infrastructure has collapsed and i mean completely collapsed yeah. mm-hmm. when i reported this story the story begins with me being in yala mm-hmm. where you know yala town very bustling very busy but just you know a stone's throw away from this very bustling market mm-hmm. is the depot for the national cereal and produce board ncpb yeah which is completely dead it's deserted wow. you know padlocks are rusting i'm talking about completely deserted and so when you see that look on one side we have a growing population a thriving town yeah, yeah. but the national the the ncpb depot is Damn. dead you know tells me that this is a product of certain political and you know economic yeah. decisions you know to kill to literally kill this this sector you know for for whatever political advantage mm-hmm. expediencies um that are factored into these kind of decisions and so kind of abandoning the small scale farmer is something that has you know been done deliberately and politically and for us to think about these kind of questions not just as a question of food but also of sovereignty and of politics mm-hmm. that politics affects us all you know yeah. is something that i really hope that this kind of stories not just my story on on one acre fund but what root to food is doing um if we can kind of raise our social consciousness about what it means to actually be food secure and food sovereign people yeah um, i think uh-huh. that's something that is really needed um in this in this in this society wow they are providing services that the government should provide yeah. and 
was providing was providing and that so that means nowadays the government doesn't provide that service agricultural extension no yeah. like you know when i spoke to farmers mm-hmm. um while reporting this story they just expressed so much pain and disappointment from the that, government at that feeling of being abandoned of like just being left to their own devices and no one cares i'll give you an example mm-hmm. one farmer told me about you know buying seed at the local agrovet which was you know they thought was a reliable outlet or they used to you know rely on on that but every every season the f- the seed would either not yield what they were expecting maybe it would not even germinate at all fertilizer wow. being adulterated yeah. uh-huh. with gravel and sand mm-hmm. you know completely kind of being abandoned to no standards no regulation no government presence in any meaningful kind of way and so if this happens to you year after year and people really feel like they have nowhere to turn and yeah. what do you do at the end of the day you need to make an income you do what you need to do yeah. you become a hawker you yeah. become a laborer for hire you do what you you have to do to survive you know yeah. but that pain is real the pain of being told that your life doesn't matter your farm doesn't matter your way of life doesn't matter um it's very painful mm-hmm. and it's a kind of pain that i think we don't really account for enough in our agricultural conversations when we have this very capitalistic profit driven kind of way of thinking and you say all that matters is is this place productive then i'll invest in it yeah, forget about yeah, these other people yeah. which is something historically kenya has done 1965 sessional paper number 10 made this official government policy it said the government is going to invest in high productivity or high potential areas which says that if your land or this certain side of Kenya can be harnessed for whatever the government considers uh-huh. potential yeah. or productivity fine then we'll pay attention to you and oh. if you don't forget about you like official wow. government policy says that it doesn't really i mean we are not going to go out of our way to make a nation and this kind of logics are still very much at play in fact sessional paper number 10 didn't only talk about high potential areas it also talked about investing in people who are receptive or open to development what does that mean for a nation that we are con- we are categorizing certain yeah, people yeah, as yeah. open to development or receptive to development and forget about other people at the end of the day we are are we a nation or not You know. Yeah, yeah. Would we talk this way about our families, our, our own children? I'm going to invest in people. Who yeah. Are, I mean, even our own <laughs> our own families don't work like this. Um there are certain expectations of care. Yeah. that go beyond such, you know, cold calculations, mm-hmm. you know? But I don't think as a nation we have reckoned enough with, you know, the legacy of of such of such policies. What are some of the ways that small-scale farmers can begin to take back some autonomy and agency in light of little help from state agencies. So I'm really encouraged by the idea of, you know, something that we have been doing as people for the longest time, which is food cooperatives. Mm-hmm. People exchanging knowledge, seed, yeah. farming practices. I'm seeing more interest in or a kind of increased interest in reviving this kind of ways of doing things. It's difficult when you're in a country like Kenya where, you know, capitalism is so cutthroat and, you know, indigenous ways of of being indigenous knowledge is 
marginalized and degraded actively all the time. But I'm really encouraged by, for example, in a previous episode, you had Oyunga Pala here yeah, uh-huh. speaking about seed sovereignty is yeah. that's true freedom when you actually have control over over your food and over the, your next harvest, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. He talked about women who come together to exchange seed, who have kept these food varieties and seed varieties alive because of the collective and the communal commitment to keeping these ways alive. I'm always encouraged that, you know, Kenyans are very resilient and I think a lot of times people exploit that resilience. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> But it it's it's actually true. Like it's 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 something that we always have a way of coming together to mm-hmm. figure a way out of difficult situations. And so I'm encouraged also by the increasing numbers of people, millennials like myself, mm-hmm. who either individually or through their charmers are getting interested in farming again. Mm-hmm. Of course, there are all these capitalist and global interests to direct this farming in a certain way. Yeah, mm-hmm. But I'm always very encouraged that We are people who are critical thinkers. We are people who, you know, can deliberate and figure out a way for ourselves together. And so even with all this information that is pushing people towards this, you know, commercialized ways yeah. and everything, yeah. I believe that it doesn't have to be an either or. It doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. You don't have to commit to these traditional ways and then like never be food secure ever again, you know? <laughs> yeah. Or you're, you're kind of signing on to a life of, you know, poverty forever. But our ways, which include things like permaculture, which include things like biological ways of managing pests basically working with nature working with yeah. nature exactly mm-hmm. and i think as a people we need to regain our confidence that's something that has really been battered over the years um you know being made to feel like anything african is not good anything like we always trying to catch up and yeah, we, yeah. we actually don't have the confidence to say that We actually know some things, you know? Mm-hmm. We are not waiting <laughs> to be we are not blank slates or helpless waiting to be shown the way. I mean it it really disturbs me a lot when Africans are portrayed in that way as childish, as infantile kind of as helpless as waiting to be helped. And I really think we should begin to see ourselves as people who, you know, have the agency and the autonomy and the capability yeah. to figure out a way a way forward for ourselves. So the last question is agriculture has been identified as a key pillar of our post-covid economy recovery. Considering most farming is handled by small-scale farmers, is the state of our farming resilient and dynamic enough to generate jobs, enough food and growth for the economy? I would answer that by saying it can be. Mm-hmm. It can be. It, it may not be performing at its potential or at the level where it's possible. Yeah, yeah. But it can be. Agriculture can be that thing that you know with the right policies with the right focus with the right commitments can get us somewhere yeah you know as i was reporting this story i i talked about the the bar being so low mm-hmm. and the gap being so wide that just providing reliable seed makes such a big difference yeah you know something yeah. as simple as mm-hmm. that small things can make a very big difference you know what worries me is kind of the the political forces that monopolize or marshal attention and marshal you know you know certain firms have market dominance in certain sectors mm-hmm. right yeah so it's very difficult to 
to figure out a way outside of these pressures. You know, it's a high pressure and highly political situation that makes certain farms have outsized outsized influence, yeah. outsized market share, an outsized voice. But I think our, our lives matter, our voices matter. Mm-hmm. And and figuring out a way to a, a dignified life really is what I think our people just want. That's what everyone just wants, a dignified life. I've picked so much from you, Christine. And one thing is, exploiting vulnerability is not a sustainable way of making progress. Maybe you can give us your parting shot in closing remarks. I agree with that statement. Mm-hmm. Um, despite the bar being so low and the opportunities being so, uh, just a small thing makes such a big difference. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, when your whole business model is based on those gaps, and you know the question that one is left with is is that farmer ultimately more independent you know living a life of dignity and mm-hmm. of agency mm-hmm. or are they trapped in a system and in force with forces that they don't fully understand and can't control yeah that feeling of of helplessness and being at the mercy of you know a big farm with a corporate agenda mm-hmm. is something that you know in conclusion we can't say that that is you know a, a dignified life of freedom when you are at the mercy first you came out of you know you know that saying that says out of the frying pan and into the fire yeah it's like on both sides oh yeah, yeah. you're either choosing between like government neglect yeah, yeah. <laughs> or being caught up in this corporate yeah. profit driven mm-hmm. you know being captured in that system i don't think our farmers need you know either of those choices i don't think it has to be this binary that they are trapped in this in this situation in this situation yeah. yes they there is i believe that you know together we can figure out a way that is sustainable and dignified that you know treats us as people not as data points yeah not as you know helpless africans waiting to be saved or whatever but really empowers people in a fully sustainable way that 25 years down the line this is what we can say about our farmers and about our country about our ability to feed ourselves to feed into um, the future generations to feed future generations exactly so exploiting vulnerabilities is not the way to get there and mm-hmm. for me that's that's what i would want us to to leave this conversation with yeah thinking about it's not enough for a very well capitalized farm with millions of dollars in fundraising yeah. <laughs> to come and solve our agriculture food problem for us Thank you so much Christine and thank you listeners for tuning in. I have picked so much from her. I hope you also pick something from her insights. You can follow us on SoundCloud, like, share and leave us a comment. Subscribe on our Apple podcast, rate and review our episodes. If you have any questions, write to us on info@rutofood.org. We'll also be coming to you next Friday for more interesting conversations. Thank you.